There's an untranslatable poem on Bellum of war and Bellunium beastly, apparently. I'm told. Also, it doesn't seem like the Swiss. <laughs> Hello, you're listening to Social Science Talk Science Fiction, a podcast where social scientists, researchers, theorists and philosophers discuss the themes and works of science fiction. This podcast is recorded in the basement of the International Politics Department at Aberystwyth University and is available free under a Creative Commons license. If you'd like to see or hear more from us, check out the website at socialsciencetalks.wordpress.com, subscribe on iTunes, or tweet at social underscore sci-fi. We hope you enjoy the programme. In his 1515 treatise Utopia, Thomas More concludes, Therefore, I am glad that the Utopians have fallen upon this form of government, in which I wish all the world could be so wise as to imitate them. For they have, indeed, laid down such a scheme and foundation of policy that as men live happily under it, so it is like to be of great continuance. For they, having rooted out the minds of their people all the seeds, both of ambition and faction, there is no danger of any commotions at home, which alone has been the ruin of many states that seemed otherwise to be well secured. 500 years after it was first published, Utopia is still in print and is being celebrated this year as the 500th anniversary. But what makes it relevant today? I'm Alex Hoseason, and joining me today... I'm Matthew Campbell. I'm Yvonne Rinkard. And I'm Matthew Reese. So, Matt, this was your choice um, in an attempt to go further back than Mary Shelley. Um, do you want to give us a outline of why you think it's interesting? So, yeah, I, I, I am curiously, weirdly interested in the question of what the first sci-fi is. And uh, it, this isn't a bad choice for it, although as soon as um, I suggested it, uh, Matt Reese did point out to me that arguably the Book of Revelation counts <laughs> as an older one. Um, but I think Utopia is interesting because if we're looking at the patterns of what we want to get out of sci-fi, imagining societies that run parallel to our own in order to explore our own political problems, Utopia definitely fits in there. And I think accidentally more than anything, it follows on quite well from... Uh, Player of Games by Ian M. Banks or Embassy Town by China Meville, which we've done very recently, which fall into roughly the same idea. They are both British authors who have built this um, alternate world, and we're invited to come explore its pros and cons. Also, I wanted to do one that wasn't originally written in English, so Latin, uh, it turned out to be. Yeah, I think one of the things that we've seen over the last few novels is that actually what changes is is, is is quite a simple thing, right? So, I mean, you know, they can have this kind of alternate history or whatever, but the actual mechanism that changes is, is fundamental to society, but you think, well, what if the only thing we change is that they don't have property, right? Or what if the only thing we change is that um, people are nice to each other? <laughs> you know, a society consists entirely of women. Or, you know, like, these are quite fundamental things to change, but quite often there's one fact that changes and kind of everything follows from that. And for more, that is, well, what if all property was held in common, right? And I think one of the things that is a l- little bit weird reading it now and is kind of, was fascinating to me, this is the first time I've read it, so, it, you know, it was quite fascinating to me because what you realise is this debate over property being held in common is a live one, right? Which is quite strange to us. I mean, the idea that it's possible to have property in common in the first place is actually a little bit difficult uh, without quite a rigid sequence of rules and all the rest of it because we're so used to act, acting a different way. But obviously this is also happening in in the context of the enclosure of large amounts of land by, by the barony and, 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 and so on in order to maximise their wealth at the expense of the peasantry. We, yeah, we think of the world that we live in today with discussions about you know the concept of you know, not having property. Imagine how that would be received within our society. And then you consider the type of person that Thomas More was talking about this, or at least writing about it, um, in the time that he was writing about it. And I think you're right that it is particularly... It is definitely something very important about this uh, work, is that when you compare it to the, context, the historical context in which he was writing and the kind of person that he was and the kind of social standing that he had, that he was prepared to sort of write, write these things and not distance himself too far definitely from them in terms of the way he writes and the way that he goes about doing it. So, I mean, you know a little bit more about the historical context than we do, Matt. I mean, is, it, is this, for him, do you think this is like more of a... Is it just a flight of fancy? I mean, he writes it mm. when he's bored, right? Mm. And Much like Dan Dresden. <laughs> yeah. mm. But, you know, he writes it when he's bored on some diplomatic mission somewhere and, and, you know, he kind of knocks this out, right? And then, oh, look, it's really long, you know. I mean, do you think this is a 
flight fancy or do you think he was quite a politically controversial figure or well he definitely wasn't a man who minded speaking his mind or going against the grain as we know obviously with his relationship with Henry VIII and the unfortunate um, way that that turns out and so I don't think it's fair to assume I don't think it would be fair to assume that Thomas More here is just writing something and then not really thinking too much about it and just moving on with his life but then of course it does contradict quite a lot with some of the stuff he does in later life so I think one of the things that Thomas More is quite famous for is maybe some of his persecution religious persecution in in um, in the later half of the 16th century or at least not the later half but beyond after this book has been written and so you do wonder then okay so how does that fit with the stuff that we know Thomas More was known for and is what is kind of he's kind of famous for um but definitely his um definitely his controversy in the uh, in utopia matches with his controversy in life in terms of i think he's a, he's a man of contradictions who um seems to be a man who's is very very um good politically knows how to has a political antennae, knows how to get into power, knows how to use power. And yet he's a man who also has very strong principles on which he's not prepared to compromise when it comes to it and, loses his li- and ultimately loses his life for it. So, yeah, I, you do hear, I think some people do dismiss Thomas More's utopia as, well, you know, it's contradictory with what, how he lives his life, or, you know, did he write this when he was bored? Why did he write this? What does this mean to him? What, how important was it? But I think that's quite fair. I think we have to take it for what it is, because... Thomas More didn't live life lightly, and so I think that to that this deserves, you know, like our our consideration in, in that respect. I think. Yeah. But I think. Sorry. But I think similar to that, also, what is interesting is that the book itself kind of introduces a fair amount of ambiguity about what he's describing. Right. So if you read through the letters in the beginning, it, it says things. Oh, we don't quite know where it is because somebody coughed and this kind of stuff and. I think that's interesting in that there's a degree of self-consciousness about and degree about of ambiguity about the content of the book itself and I think that that links quite well to what you were quite mm. just saying right Moore's also a character within the text the, the mm. book's presented as this story is being told by him by a person who's visited Utopia mm. and as a result Moore is able to express skepticism mm. about the quality of the society he's hearing about and I wonder if this is his actual scepticism of this ideal he's built or a hand wave to distance himself from ideas that might have been too unpopular Mm. I think it's kind of both in the sense that it's I mean it's basically a kind of treatise on social planning right in the same way Plato's Republic is right you've got all these kind of descriptions of institutions and traditions and all the rest of it but at the same time it's also quite consciously a book or a there's a lot of playful language and all of that kind of stuff it's communicated by letters to people like Erasmus who add things to it take things away you know in in some ways actually it's written there's quite a lot of communal aspect to the book right I mean and I, I don't know I mean maybe kind of writing it off like I think you're saying I mean maybe writing it off is actually undermining the value of that kind of way of thinking through things right talking about things discussing them you know if you like puns you like puns right I mean you know it's all good and this book has so many puns <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah but I, I, I think that also doesn't take away from the serious, seriousness of what the, the major question is and that is what would a society be like if it didn't have property full stop everything else at least for me from the book seems to follow from that question um, and, and and this is why the book echoes down the ages as a kind of proto-Marxist account of of what a society without property might might look like I mean certainly there are you can draw the direct parallels and whether there's an actual influence in there you can certainly look at the similarities to what Marx goes on to write so Moore appears to be very concerned with the idea of alienation that in the modernised economy, there's a greater distance between what people live with, what people make, and what they do for a living. And so Moore's very keen on, okay, well, the people of Utopia, they make their own clothes. Which seems like a curious thing to focus on, but of course, in Moore's era, we're seeing not industrialization but a 
commercialization of clothing and wool is becoming this big thing and he's very clearly keen to see people not distanced from that problem and that's of course what Marx goes on to talk about in terms of people who chop wood or work in factories or are just distanced from what it is they're making yeah I mean I, I, th- I think there's a couple of different points to make there I mean in terms of socialism there's obvious links with kind of Marxism as such I mean Karl Kautsky writes a book about Thomas More's Utopia which I didn't have time to read but I think I'm actually going to go on and read where he kind of compares Moore's account of what society is like before capitalism with Marx's and kind of draws out the various things right inevitably picks up on the slavery question which we'll talk about later as kind of the key point at which well hang on a second this is still effectively a in Marxist terms primitive society but I mean it's also got a large amount of influence on the side of the kind of in Marxist terms again the non-scientific socialists right so it, it it is at the root, as far as I understand it, it is a kind of super important for the kind of Christian socialist tradition, the non-Marxist socialist tradition, um, in terms of basic principles of respect and the importance of labour, um, which is obviously kind of super important for the kind of religious shifts that we're seeing at the time in in, in Christianity. No, yeah, definitely, I think... Um some of the things that Moore talks about in terms of, I think, you know, the idea of dignity is um, particularly interesting. And obviously, like you say, it comes back to the kind of, um, you know, like the utopian uh, tradition also has clear connection to the kind of Christian socialist tradition as well. Um, and in, in that respect, um, Moore does seem to see something in the idea of human dignity that maybe a lot of people of his social standing or class might not have might not have been quite so open to at the time. So I think so I think there's that that element of it maybe being a little bit, I could say like a little bit different from the Marxist approach to to sort of the human as it were. There's definitely that would I think there's something definitely in the discussion of virtue that he makes. Yeah. That 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 you have get this impression that um, there's an ideal kind of human and there's an ideal kind of human life and that the society that he wants would very much pressure that pressure the individual to become that certain type of, of virtuous character. So I think so I think that's quite interesting that the social engineering very much engineers personal character and personal um, uh, and, and so there's a kind of connection between an incentive of what of human dignity but also a particular kind of understanding of what that means and how we would pressure people into being a bit like that. So I think I think that's interesting as well in terms of um, in terms of maybe his 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 religious ideas um, mean that he has an understanding he he's still in a place in maybe out in in Europe in the historical context of Europe where he's still at a place of having an understanding of how humans should be but also believing that they should that people should be shaped and helped to become that rather than deciding maybe to be that themselves and that's very clear I think in in Utopia so this relates to something Alex was saying before, which was to compare Moore's idea of utopia with Hobbes's Leviathan. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel you know I feel like we've bitten off more than we can chew as far as this book goes. Like I, I don't know I, when, I, when I first read it, I was like, well, actually, we could, it's something we can talk about in quite broad strokes. But I'm definitely getting the impression now that maybe we can't. I mean, I, I mean, so. The way I kind of saw it, and, and, and is that Moore's writing this kind of in a in a, in a way that is 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 directly opposite to Hobbes as a, as an idea of the way society comes about, right? And 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 the point is for Hobbes, which is obviously super influential in international relations and and politics more broadly. All people are equal, roughly. They average out to being equal biologically, right? And therefore, you've got an equal chance of being stabbed in the back by everyone, right? For more, everyone's equal on average biologically, so therefore you can recognise that commonality in other people and work with it, right? So in a similar way, he's setting up what kind of John Locke would do much later, right? So you have this ability to recognise in other people yourself, right? Which is also important for a lot of the liberal social contract tradition which you then see in Jean-Jacques Rousseau and before the French Revolution um, and, and all the rest of it. I mean, 
one of the things I would highlight though is is that Moore's writing at the beginning of the development of a kind of bourgeois class, right? So we're only just seeing, or well, I mean, depending on which story you're reading, but you, you're just seeing the beginnings of the kind of formal mechanisms of capitalism coming in, right? And one of the interesting things about this is Moore focuses his idea of virtue and goodness and all the rest of it predominantly, I think, on labouring on the ground, like in with the earth yeah. and all the rest of it. Mm. His ideas of reason and reflection and beauty and all the rest of it are all drawn from the way that you are in the world with your tools and your farming and all the rest of it. And so he says several times that reason is in conformance with nature or, you know, something similar. I mean, so the way he actually runs against a lot of these kind of later kind of more bourgeois thinkers like Locke and like uh, Mill and so on is that they have this idea that actually virtue lies in the reflection of reason in isolation from its environment, right? So actually that's the task that only the rich can do, right? You know, they have enough wealth and everything else that they can be schooled and they have time to reflect upon the good and all of this kind of thing. So more still at an earlier period than that. So he's not drawing this kind of like isolated utopian thing where it's like oh wouldn't this be good and people can say yes it would and no it wouldn't and all that kind of thing he's saying well actually if you look at people working on the ground in the earth getting filthy and stinking and dirty this is the idea of beauty and goodness and everything else that comes out of that and that's a curious part of utopian society in that every two years thousands or hundreds or whatever the number is of citizens are made to go and work as farmers for two years and this is quite a curious thing to do because agriculturally that doesn't seem like a sensible way to organise the knowledge of your society. So it seems to be a moral choice, right? That you should want to go and work on the land because that is good work. Um, there's a lot of writing in the book about the problem of idleness, but it becomes very clear that they include court retainers as the idle just as much as they include beggars. Well, you have, you have this idea of productive and unproductive labour, right? Yeah. Which is obviously, again, <laughs> he's saying this a lot, the basis of a, a lot of at least the appeal of socialism to the working classes in the, in, in, in the kind of early 19th century. So even before Marxism happens, you have people coming out and saying, well, hang on a second, these bankers don't seem to be doing very much. right?" And, and, and this is the kind of thing that you get in... Uh, there's a fantastic book called um, The Ragged Trouser Philanthropist by Robert Tressel that goes into exactly this point where they have all these kind of Marxists and Bolsheviks and kind of pre-Bolshevik, but they come in and say, look, you know, capitalism is bad because of this mechanism and this mechanism. And actually what the workers are concerned with is the fact that that guy's not actually doing anything and seems to be reaping the benefits of their labor. Um, And I think that that's quite an interesting point because Moore uses this as a catch-all thing, right? He condemns the bishoprics. He condemns the aristocracy he condemns the bankers he can you know and and everything else although he does curiously seem to make quite a lot of room in his society for people that want to do that like I, I think his price of entry for people that want to do that is that they're good at it which seems a little bit of a kind of strange meritocratic point to be making so as well as the island of utopia being socially engineered Yvonne you were saying that utopia is also physically engineered yeah I mean I think that's that's the thing that I find most interesting about the book, right? That this is an artificial island. It didn't used to be an island initially. I think it had a different name, which I forget. Um, something for A. And then it was invaded, so then we have a kind of colonialist, colonialist, imperialist kind of tinge to this, which we might want to discuss as well. And then it was it was made an island, right, right through a kind of large-scale engineering project which I think is really interesting because you're kind of you seem to be establishing these kind of ideal conditions which are absolutely necessary like so we were saying earlier that that you know for example they have like this 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 island seems to be providing them with everything that they need apart from iron that's like the one thing that they actually want to trade with and these kind of things and that's that's not something that would really work in the real world and I think that's that's really interesting that that's also the basis, right? You need a particular spatial arrangement for this this whole social organisation to be feasible. 
But I wonder, yeah, but I wonder to what extent um, Moore is writing this as something he wants to see happen. Mm. And to what extent he's writing this as an ideal world, a utopia, obviously, um, which can help us to look at ourselves and the society in which we live. Mm. Um, and, and therefore, because I'm very struck by the, the, the closing of, the, of, 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 of his work, where it kind of, he kind of almost takes a little bit of a, a step back to a certain extent and sort of says things like, oh, well, you know, this, this would be interesting. Some of these things, or most of these things, could be, could be incorporated into our world. Mm. And, um, and um, oh, I think that some... I'm not, I don't agree with all of them. I'm not sure about all of them. But I think it's generally quite a good thing. And so I think he very much welcomes uh, discussion on these points. But I, I can't decide for myself whether I think that this is, this is more writing... Uh, 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 a, a manual for I don't know <laughs> Tudor England, or whether he's um, or whether he's writing um, or whether he's writing something just in order to like prick the conscience almost. Uh, I I think that the argument that he's writing this as a look what you could do only works so far as they're things which might be helpful. Mm. And this is one of the problems with Plato's Republic. It's one of the problems with Utopia. It is something I brought up when we discussed uh, the Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin is that if the world you've built, if the science fiction you've written, relies on things we cannot attain, then its utility to us is immediately reduced. Uh, and so the, the great example is in Plato's Republic, Plato says that the, the perfect city would not be on the coast. Because if it's on the coast, it needs a navy, and navies need rowers, and that means you have too many uh, citizens who are in the military, and this unbalances things. It's like, okay, that's a very useful piece of thinking except it's actually not useful at all because some cities are on the coast. And so, yeah, Plato's playing with a hypothetical, but it's not one that's any way useful to us because of the fiction he wrote into it. And there are times when I think Utopia runs up against that. There's plenty of useful stuff in Utopia, but as soon as you say, okay, we've got this island and it's just the right size and the population's just the right size and it has just the resources, fine, but we don't live in that world. Yeah, I mean, I think that... I think I agree with what you said, Matt, about the end of the book in terms of it being a point of reflection. Because actually, he says quite literally, like, I don't know what I think about these things. We can talk about it like, and everything. But he says, we can talk about them, right? Mm. And that's the point at which he's kind of throwing it out there. I mean, but it isn't... In some ways, it's an important point to make because... Is that, like is anyone ever going to design a city from scratch, right? I mean, I think that's kind of the argument that you're making, Matt. You know, it, like well, people have, but, yes, well, exactly. but I mean, you know, yeah, people kind of have. I mean, but it is also it's that vantage point which kind of makes the kind of hand wavy stuff most obvious, right? The infinite energy machine in Atlas Shrugged is my is my favourite one, <laughs> right? Um, faster than light travel, AI is a common one. Um, you know all of these kind of hand wavy things we see and I think at least as far as utopia goes um, for me it's uh, the slavery and colonialism thing is you know something that he seems remarkably happy with mm. um, given that he's not writing that far after a lot of these things are happening when is the council of is it the council of Salamanca or well in terms of in terms of feudal society not not being a distant memory anyway and yeah. definitely the time he lived in the idea that some people weren't allowed to move around was probably not that unusual for you know or that alien a concept so yeah well I mean so the island of Utopia is what 200 miles across they say and the towns are a set amount of miles apart from each other and he introduces this rule whereby citizens aren't allowed to move around without the little passport from their mayor and that slaves aren't allowed to move, allowed to move around anyway but how far did land working peasants move in that era um, even on an island like Britain you're not going to move like, more than two towns over in any given breadth of time do you have something to say about? yeah I mean I think I was going to go back to a point that, that Matthew was pointing out is that this is something that has been done Right, so in a lot of stuff that I'm doing, that is actually, you know, a lot of airports, a lot of infrastructure is actually built on artificial islands now, and I think that's quite fascinating. That this is, this, you know, this idea of having an artificial island and building on something is something that we actually do now, and I think, and I think that that makes it interesting because that it's no longer just a hypothetical. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the Romans did it, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. famous, famous for planned cities. 
I, I, I think the, the contradiction comes out when you're writing something that is kind of supposed to be good or virtuous mm. because quite often that tends to be an all or nothing thing right so I mean if you did plan a city block which was effectively a commune right yeah. that commune then by necessity has to work in relation to the way that services work yeah. out in the rest yeah. of the city yeah. right so I, I mean I, I think that's the this kind of quite common thing with these I, I mean of course you know kibbutzes exist right you know I mean of course based on the idea that there is enough land and you can get hold of the land then you can go and do that I mean that's um, what the Americans did you know sense yeah do you, you think about that when you read it that it is just completely fant- fanciful though the re- level of resources the level of protection that they have the level of or, or do you think that actually that doesn't hinder us from maybe <laughs> from, from, you know you're, 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 I'm just wondering what you thought because obviously you brought up this kind of more spe- this design this spatial design stuff or? well you know I, th- I I think what I find interesting is that this is something we're still trying to do okay so what it reminded me of is, for example, like one of the projects I looked at recently is, is Istanbul Airport, for example. There's, they're building this, they're building a new airport, and because they didn't, they didn't quite have the right site for it, they ended up having to build it in an area where you have hills and you have a forest and you have a lake, which is like the opposite of what you want your site to be, and and this project is really interesting because it has to create this flat site where you can build an airport and I think that's quite interesting and then you have things like I think Hong Kong airport is built on a kind of artificial island and and these kind of things and so I think I think it's it's what is interesting about this is that this is an ambition that we are still mm-hmm. pursuing in some in some context so, so in that respect it isn't maybe yeah maybe then there is some more to this idea that actually we look when we first look at it we think yeah okay Thomas More you know a lot of this is I'm sure it was fun but it's it's impossible it it is actually part of our wider aspiration as as humans looking to some not necessarily utopia itself but looking to progress in some way that we are always looking for this even if we maybe somewhere know that it's not completely achievable and therefore maybe that reflects into how we think about how some of these ideas might be put into practice or could have or would or can. Yeah, I was always slightly confused in a lot of my political theory classes because, mm. I mean, one of the things that struck me because, for instance, John Locke has this thing of, well, you can kind of take what you want as long as you leave as much and as good for someone else right so this is kind of one of the fundamental principles that he works with and Moore's kind of looking at something similar and I I always wondered whether that was based because of the time it was written whether it was based on the assumption that hang on a second we can pretty much go on expanding here right I mean I, I think at least for Moore he's quite conscious that Britain is an island but at the same time which I mean, the fact that Britain is an island allows him to point out all this wasteful use of land, right? And you know, the book begins. We don't haven't talked much about the first part of the book, which is basically a conversation about well, does the actions of the barony and all this kind of thing lead to? Is that the cause of vagrancy and crime? Um, so I mean, actually, the first part of the book is identifying the kind of problems that he's trying to address. Yeah. Right, which is obviously what gives it its critical edge because he he claims or Raphael claims. Hang on a second, this is directly the result of the expropriation of the peasantry, um, as opposed to some kind of roundabout. Well, they weren't using the land properly, so you know the, the barons or whatever are just trying to make sure that that happens, um, and it happens in the most productive way possible. I mean, how did you feel about the resource? the resource thing I think this kind of leads on then to the kind of colonial thing they are I I was acutely uncomfortable at the and I know it's this is the 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 all purpose cop out argument it's of the era but utopia is oh man yeah I use the cop out argument Um, so we're told that utopia is founded by a foreigner arriving at a savage land with an army who then proceeds to terraform We'd recognise this if it was a separate planet as terraforming. He chops the island off. He then civilises the savages. Um, it's then later revealed that it appears that this invading army was Greek, so it's European in origin. And then once they've made their island nice and civilised, they just go off and invade other places. Because far from being peaceful, 
the utopians feel that, well, if uh, someone over there isn't using their land productively enough, the utopians are just allowed to invade, seize the land, and turn it into their farmland. And that often the people they invade are pleased that this has happened because of all the benefits of this invading nation um, bringing to their society of, you know, basically civilization. Um, and that has dated really, really badly. Um, we never find out who these invaded people are or what they thought or what gods they followed or whether their religion had as much inherent universal truth as the utopian religion, even though it wasn't Christian. Um, their voices are completely absent. And I think I don't think Moore's opposed to this idea. I think that because he thinks that this society is a virtuous one, that it's allowed to displace unvirtuous ones. I think he does so with quite a lot of caveats, in the sense of, like, so they invade, but they invade in a way that is as little, uh, involves as little violence as possible, right? And then they basically allow the people to come into their society, and then if they don't do that, they can come into their society, if they still fight back, they can come into their society as slaves, and if they're slaves, they can eventually redeem themselves and be forgiven and brought into the society. You know, so I think there's constant caveats against it. That's not to say it's not completely morally repugnant, but I think you can see him struggling with it through the book because he's constantly putting these little trap doors in as to like, well, if they're really a good person, then they'll be a good slave because being a slave under the utopians is all right, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and, and all this kind of thing, right? I mean, he doesn't seem to be dealing with kind of, he doesn't seem to be understanding social relations in kind of fundamental categories of this is a colonised people. I, that doesn't seem to exist for him. I mean, I, I, I kind of wondered whether that was related to the fact that at this time, I mean, the idea of a nation state is still only fragmentary, right? You know, I mean, the king wouldn't see himself as of the same people as his peasants, I don't think. Am I right in saying that? Or? I'd say that's broadly fair, certainly. Yeah, I mean, he would see himself as of a different kind. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, I, I think for the colonialism thing, he, he, he really seems to struggle with it. But it is really weird <laughs> to read it. And he's like, and of this virtuous colonialism, and you're like, yeah, okay, right. Uh, maybe we shouldn't have gone 500 years back. And the, 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 resources, <laughs> the resources colonialism generates for you are yours by virtue of the fact that you'd used them. Uh that was quite weird yeah I mean as far as as far as the the organisation of the society internally goes though I mean I think we can still see a lot of those divisions right I mean there, there's slavery and there's there's definitely a, a kind of huge gender gap in or gender hierarchy in, in, in the way that the social relations work mm. I think yeah I well think... there is and there isn't right so you have this very clear hierarchy and then I think there's this there's this moment when he's describing the wife kneeling in front of the husband and then the children kneeling in front of the wife and, and so it's, you know, it's a very clear physical hierarchy but then there's this odd moment when he's kind of, he's adding that women can be priests or women I think can join their husband when they go to war and this kind of stuff so there's a, these weird moments of where that hierarchy is disrupted there's Almost. that deeply strange part where he suggests that men should be allowed to inspect the naked bodies of their Fiancés before marriage, but so women. But vice versa as well, is that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's both. I didn't quite get the purpose of this because I don't know if you could turn somebody down or if this was more like I how think, you've seen it. I think this was Moore's complaint was that you have to marry someone based on only seeing their face, and they might be really ugly underneath their clothes, and it is unreasonable to expect people to stay married to someone when they haven't seen their body, which is. That's a whole course on its own. Yeah, I think it's something to do with ailments as well, that like you mm. should be able to see whether they're like ill or not, and if so, then you might not want to get married to them. I think there's some kind of strange stuff going on there as well. I mean, you could make a slightly more generous point of like, you should probably know who... I mean, if you start from... If you generalise that to like, you should probably know who you marry. Mm. Reasonable point, right? Language of the time opinions of the time I mean certainly slightly so more women have a right to divorce their husbands which is this we'd probably give a thumbs up to without too many qualifications this is something more thought of that he wanted to put in hmm. to me the really curious part is that there's many jobs which either are men only or he only writes about them and being the job of men 
and then these men's wives automatically acquire certain duties based on the job of their husband. So if you're a local politician, your wife is responsible for finding a wet nurse for orphans. And I find that kind of curious in that women are expected, they can be priests, they're expected to join the army, and yet within the context of marriage, there are certain jobs women inherit by virtue of their husbands. I, th- I felt, though, in, in a way that it does, on a few occasions in relation to gender, in relation to hierarchy, in re- and, and in relation to some of the um, sort of religious and priestly um, duties, um, that it all feels a little bit like... Um, uh, work, work in pro- progress that Thomas More is th- thinking through these ideas mm. and he's writing them down and he's coming up with caveats as he goes along in some cases and in other cases he what he has some quite what we might now consider enlightened ideas I guess but they're very much thought about within a framework or within within some particular kind of thing that he, lens that he can't quite see through he can't quite get away from the idea that something like slavery might exist so he tries to work out well how do we make slavery better then or yeah. he thinks mm-hmm. that women might be good priests you know I think I get, that's the impression I get almost is that like oh maybe actually women would be quite good at being priests but obviously he then tries to work out how in the context of everything that I know about the world and about religion and about my Christianity and about the Catholic Church how does that work and so you then find them maybe in the relationship between the man and the woman slipping back into some less what might can be because some less enlightened ideas so he's the original so, Fabian for you he's this kind of yeah. social democrat <laughs> yeah. after Fabius so well yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fabius is the original Fabian <laughs> yeah, you, can go, you, you go with him along on a lot, on a lot of stuff and, and but then maybe the bigger picture is more difficult to go along with but what is interesting yeah. about this is that this is also fundamental, fundamentally necessary for the bigger picture, right? Because the only reason why he can only have these six hours of work is because he has both genders working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and slaves. Has, oh, yeah, that too. But as well. There's always this. So there's a weird... I think even I, though he's thinking through this, it's so incredibly fundamental to how he constructs this world and the kind of temporal yeah. organization of this world. Right? Yeah, I think. I mean, the slavery thing because at least my copy was quite explicitly divided up into sections. I don't know whether. Yeah. So it would be like the slaves and they got you know their religion or their rights or you know whatever. And I, I think I kind of agree with you, Matt, in the sense that, for instance, throughout throughout the entire like a lot of the second half of the book I was thinking like when is he going to get around to the slavery thing mm. and then he went this bit's about the slaves and I went yes he's talking about the slaves and then he, then he talked about something that I didn't even mm. think about like how people become slaves yeah I mean fair enough that's obviously an important question um, you know but about the fact that if there's adulterers they can both become slaves and still be in love and that's fine mm. it was like that wasn't the question that immediately came to my mind then- when the punishment I was thinking for, about slavery. Yeah. The punishment for being an adulterer a second time is death. Yeah. <laughs> especially after having the discussion at the beginning right. about how on earth could st- uh, stealing and vagrancy be punished yeah. by death. So there's the, the, the contradictions. Right? That's a clever setup because it takes almost half the book before Raphael starts talking about utopia. Mm. And the book sets up as saying there's this straw man character who's like death to vagrants. And then Raphael's like, okay, no, here's this complete alternative where we don't arbitrarily kill people and instead make productive slaves of them, a sort of chattel community service mm. which is quite a clever way of setting up slavery as a better than the alternative thing which he then proceeds to build into the economy of utopia and I think mm. we'd be a lot less charitable about utopia's slavery if there hadn't been a setup pointing out that well actually this life genuinely would have been better than the death they committed people to in Tudor England yeah that's true but, but it, sorry. people would have found themselves if they did things wrong in feudal society being made slaves right and so there is, there's, there's that tinge there of although maybe the life is better than the life would have been in feudal England when you be, were made a slave and told you weren't allowed to leave the, and if you were caught leaving there would be certain punishments and that punishment would ultimately be death at some point but so, so, that, so to me I just constantly think of like yeah okay but whether the slavery is good or not like there is very much this feeling that he doesn't seem to see a problem with this idea that of something that did exist, at, you know, not very long ago in in his world, as being something that was okay. Yeah, yeah but I, th- I think you can kind of position it right. I mean, we're going to be in this a lot, I guess, but 
you can kind of position it. When I read that, what I was thinking, that he's effectively laying out or going through the same thought process as the people, the kind of Victorian reformers that set up workhouses, mm. right? But he's doing it without any idea of what the modern, or what our idea of modern production mm. process looks like. But it's, a, it's the same impulse, right? You, you bring people into virtuous work and all the rest of it. Mm. You know, when it comes to things like inheriting jobs and the wives' role and everything else, what is he thinking about when he's thinking about men's jobs and work and... Uh, artisanal labour and all the rest of it. Well, he's thinking about guilds. He's not thinking about companies, right? Mm-hmm. He's thinking about, well, what if you had a kind of communal guild structure and if that was equalised? So, I mean, it, it is, I think, at least for me, quite a frustrating book because it annoyed me, but in the sense that you can kind of see the, like, you empathise with him struggling through it, right? You know, there's this constant thing in Marxist thought that, well, you know, we have trouble talking about this stuff at the moment because we don't know what the future looks like, mm. right? And, and of course, that applies to anything, right? Moore doesn't know what tomorrow looks like, mm. right? So I, I think maybe that is why people started coming back to this idea, well, you know, he was being inconsistent with his own life. Mm. My copy makes a huge deal out of, you know, he talks, um, the utopians not believing in discomfort or like, you know, kind of mm. flagellance and all that kind of thing as a kind of repenting before God and more wore a hair shirt, mm. right? Which apparently was given to his daughter before the, the day before he died. Um, as a weird side right. fact. There we go. Yeah. Um, but I mean, my copy makes a big deal out of that, whereas I don't necessarily, I don't think that's as important as the problem he was struggling with. Mm. Sorry. I think, I'm, I think a man who um, was beatified by the Catholic Church in the same century as he was honoured by the Soviet Union is always going to be a frustrating match <laughs> <laughs> for, for, for everyone um, and I think that is you know, this is, comes back to this, this the, these, is, these issues of I can't work out yet you know, well it's really it's curiously modern for us right because we have this view that communism was ungodly mm. and that's just not true mm. of mm. many centuries of Christian mm. uh, socialism. Mm. And communism is deeply godly. And Moore says that the most Christian societies are those who live communally. Mm. Although it's unclear whether he's talking about communist societies in general or monasteries. I think there's definitely that theme, isn't there, of the monastery and of, the, and of that and of that life. Um, and obviously... The difference, may, and the difference maybe is, of course, is that in the vows that you take when you become a monk or a nun, in, in most circumstances, I assume, are done of free will. Um, and so you, you, you enter into some, in some ways, some kind of contract, don't you? Well, you do wonder, well, we're told here that obviously these people have done the same thing. And that's maybe something that I struggle with, is this idea that, you know, there's no, there's no, there doesn't seem to be any grumbling, or there doesn't seem to be any... Um, Anyone, no one seems to have a problem with any of the things that they're, they're told to do or, 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 or ways they're told to live in Utopia. There doesn't seem to be any question of, uh, of, um, of, of rebellion or, or anything like that, which is convenient, isn't it? I mean, no. Well, it's interesting, right? Because that's almost like social contract thinking, but without the contract part. Yeah. And I wonder whether it might be working going back to, say, what he says about education and this kind of stuff. And that... To me, that might be... Because I think the education system, he says at some point, is about kind of creating this this ideal citizen or certainly like a citizen who's kind of appropriate for this kind of mm. life. And I think that that kind of might be the answer to why there's no crumbling, right? Because mm. Mm. because you're creating the citizen. And, 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 and with, with Moore's idea that you could extend the monastery to society... Is very interesting in, in insofar as the Catholic Church, I think, I think, has always had an element of wanting to extend um, Catholicism to society, and that society would all be within the realm of the Church's grip or grasp. Obviously, that's like a pre sort of Vatican II thinking of it within the Church, but and and, and but definitely very strong, very strong in terms of of, of maybe colonial endeavour in, in Latin America. We see that that idea of of, of wanting to extend grip on society, not and not only because they want to, not and not necessarily because they want to abuse that society, but because they believe that that's the right thing yeah. to do. And I think I think that's very interesting here is that 
we see that thinking very much in this idea that I've experienced a, monast a monastery setting, I've experienced a monastical life to some extent. I think there's some talk that they're more had quite close connection with a, with, with, with a, with a, with a brotherhood at some point. And therefore, I, I, I know it's good, and therefore I want to extend it, and I want it to be what the rules by which everyone lives. And there's, that no, there's not that concept of, but um, a monastery setting is very different because the people there want to be there, or the people, at least on the whole, they want to be there. So there seems to be a problem there, I, I think. Utopia is interesting in that regard, in that it's very big on religious toleration. Mm. And then we're told about all these different religions, and then it turns out they're all just Christianity by another name. I mean... I'm quoting from the translation here, but um, all the religions take the view that there's a single divine power, unknown, eternal, infinite, inexplicable, quite beyond the grasp of the human mind, diffused throughout this universe of ours, not as a physical presence, but as an active force. This power they call the parent. They give him, capital H, credit for everything that happens to everything. For, from beginnings and ends, so alphas and omegas, all growth, development and change nor do they recognise any other form of deity. Well, hang on, there's one god who's male and a parent, so there's God the Father, who's the Alpha and the Omega, and there is no god but him. Mm. Um, this multiple versions of religion sound very familiar. Yeah, and I wonder to what extent um, Erasmus was in, involved in, in maybe shaping this bit with him, right? Because yeah. it, to me, it is... It is 60, a, a, a type of humanism that you would come across in the 16th century that was very much struggling with this idea of I can't be an, I can't be a deist at this point I can't definitely can't be an atheist at this point um, and so what am I and there's a humanism from people like Erasmus at that time which definitely fits that bill so well, they are, they, I mean they're, I mean they're Quakers right yeah like I mean effectively so as long as you believe in one God and it's probably a man then it's all right um, they also have I mean it said they have an interventionist God and it's only mentioned once it's like sometimes they pray to God to deliver them from great problems and sometimes God answers their prayers mm. which doesn't really seem like a hearty endorsement of their religion it's definitely <laughs> the right one sometimes their prayers you know happen to come out correct but, mm, but I think when, when they describe the churches and stuff they say that there's 13 religions right and effectively what you end up with and so basically the churches and actually this happens a fair bit I've seen some of them in various places in India where you have these kind of compound places of worship where they bring together architecture all these different styles and stuff um, and I think the interesting thing about that is at least in Utopia you end up with this and I think this is the kind of uni unifying current of the whole thing you end up with effectively a lowest common denominator form of worship whereas you know they all say things that are sufficiently vague and abstract as that everyone can agree with them and then the bit of their religion that differs they do that at home mm -hmm. right so you have this kind of civic thing now I think the idea for someone like Moore and this is why he has such a kind of he's right on the cusp of that kind of beginning of the enlightenment the renaissance the reformation the enlightenment you know all, all that kind of stuff is he's effectively saying he brings together reason which is how he works his way through those ideas and reason is thought in accordance with nature and that is how you get close to God and therefore you come in some small way closer to God and that lowest common denominator is what forms the basis from which all difference can then proceed as long as it rests on that basis, right? And so actually for him, all that difference, it just isn't an issue, right? I mean, he, you know, I, I think, I mean, he was a well-read man. He's, he's in contact with all these people. He's in contact with Erasmus directly who comments on the book mm -hmm. and all the rest of it. I mean, that kind of, thinking is 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 all over the book i mean it's a very kind of what's it called conciliarist or you know it's almost kind of a it's almost kind of a shared labor this kind of shared humanist exercise mm. um in terms of in terms of what that way of thinking looks like and it's interesting because obviously religious toleration is much easier when all of your religions have one God. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone just suddenly accepts Christianity as soon as Raphael yeah. introduces them. And, and and I just wonder, you know, when you think then of colonialism and the way that, like, you know, the role of syncretism within colonial expansion and sort of that is, you know, pla placing ideas of uh, which which are found within what they would call the pagan religion, the local indigenous religion, or, you know, mixing it with so Christianity in some way. And you, so you, so you do wonder to what extent he's kind of thinking to himself. So if you can, if you if you make a the religion similar enough to your religion then obviously we can have toleration at that point but it then obviously plays into the question of um, 
he didn't seem to be able to do the same thing with Protestantism um, later on in the century. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, so, that, and that, so that is very interesting that he didn't think that Catholics and Protestants could meet together in public and then do the things they want to do in private. And it would be very interesting if he'd lived even later in the century and had been from the other perspective a Protestant, whether he would have been okay with Catholics do having the mass at home, you know, or you know, for instance, or you know, questions like that. I think if, he, if he'd lived um, to see the the reign of Elizabeth the first, exactly, and, the, yeah, and I mean. the toleration of Muslims in London, because yeah. they're then the Ottoman Empire is now an ally, and so their yeah. religion is the religion of an ally. Yeah, yeah, I think I think I think that's very interesting because it, it's from from his book and his actions, it's it's not possible, really, I don't think, to work out where he stood on on on, on, the, on how well the outworkings of his book are not are not obvious in his life so <laughs> mm, but how does this it's a practical question because at some point he's, he's talking about the houses and he's saying that there's not really a private space because all the yeah, all true. the doors are open how does that work with mm. doing your religion so i think uh, privacy in utopia is the physicality of being alone right okay. eating is communal work is communal Worship is communal, politics is communal, and learning is communal. Mm. And so, so there are no locks, there are no bars on the doors, yeah. but your privacy is your solitude. Mm. Mm. At least that was yeah. my interpretation. Mm. Um, and certainly, there's no blasphemous thoughts aren't raised. And yeah. uh, voice the, the thing that's uh, sedition is voicing political ideas without thinking about them first which I quite like as an idea uh, at the parliamentary meetings if an idea is raised everyone's made to go away and think about it before saying anything which is just yeah. that thought itself is not the problem it's, it's will to action yeah, yeah, but I think there's also a point where you're not allowed to talk about politics outside of these assemblies yeah. right? which is yeah, that's somewhat oppressive. Well, that's quite. <laughs> but that's, that's quite common um, in a lot of the kind of. There's an untranslatable part on Bellum socialist war and Bellonian socialist workers' party. I to present, it's also to present like the Swiss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of long elaborate yeah. arguments over what counts as a faction and whether you can go to the pub with people and stuff, but. Um, yeah, or what do you consider a, politics for that matter? Yeah, right? yeah, because that almost, in, the, in that sense, that almost seems to be like kind of a thing that has to be contained because it's dangerous. Okay, so uh, we're going to finish up there. Um, it's summer now, so I think the next couple of months are going to be interviews from conference season. Um, we've also got an interview with a guy from the history department, uh, Abba uh, Iwan, who's going to talk to us about the history of science fiction. Um, and we're going to go from there, right? I yeah. think uh, probably the next fiction book we're looking at doing is June. By Frank Herbert. By Frank but, uh, Herbert. No promises on that one. I do not have the sites, the spice site, which allows me to see into the future yet. Okay, so thanks very much. Thanks, Thank Mary. Thanks, everyone. All right, bye. bye. See you later. All right.